this is a series on the Bible. And I need you to hear this. I want you to know this, that, that my dad was a pastor, so I grew up around the Bible. I have undergraduate and graduate degrees in Bible and religion and theology, but even with all that background, having grown up with the Bible, having studied the Bible for a long time, I have to admit something, and it sounds totally weird to say this, I don't know that I always loved the Bible. And I, either that sounds really weird or scary or maybe affirming to some people, but the reason I say that are there are parts of the Bible that I did love. I love the stories of Jesus. I love the words of Jesus. I, I, the well-known passages that we all kind of hear to say, the things that I always kind of make those jokes about, that they're the passages that everybody has embroidered, or our grandmas all have embroidered, on their walls of their bathrooms, right? Like, we all know those texts. We love those Bible verses. I love those Bible verses, too. But I really struggled with what to do with certain sections of the Bible. There are just passages that are really, really difficult. So here's what I did. And we talked through this. There were passages about war and genocide that are just uncomfortable to look at. And we said, what do you do with that? There are passages about women and certain things about women that you go, I, I don't really like these passages. There are passages that are difficult as a modern person when it comes to certain things you read and you go, I don't, I don't know what to do with this. And if I'm going to be totally transparent with you, that it was easy to study the passages that I liked and, and to look at those. It was easy to study those. But the ones that I was uncomfortable with, I, I pretty much ignored. And here's the thing. And this is what I wrote down. and something that came to me that I realized is a powerful thing here. It's hard to love something when you ignore a significant part of what makes that thing what it is. Right? It's hard to love something when you ignore a significant part of what makes that thing what it is. Now, let me move this away from Bible so that we can hear how this connects. That is true in our career, right? That's true in marriage. And as I discovered, that's true of the Bible as well. Now, this is where this church is so cool. When we started this church, I don't really know that we knew what this church would become. I think we sort of had an idea of what we wanted to be and why we started and what we did. We didn't really know, though, and for those who have been around a long time, we didn't really know what it was becoming. We, we sort of had this organic feel to it. Let's see what happens along the way. And one of the things that happened along the way that I don't even know that I was prepared for was that we created a place where it was okay to ask really hard questions. And because of that, because of that sort of freedom that it's okay to ask hard questions, or that those questions are even invited. Or that there are people who want to look at Scripture, and if they don't know it, we kind of leaned into that and said, there are people around who haven't read the Bible. Okay, so how do they look at Scripture? Or we looked at people who are here who maybe they've been around the Bible a long time, but they say, I don't know about this, or I'm uncomfortable with this. There's even the people who we kind of read through stuff, and we would fudge through names, and we would just sort of go, as we said the name, the list of weird names in the Bible, because we didn't want to be the person who, oh, I pronounced that name wrong. Here's what I realized was, I mean, I don't know how to pronounce half those names either, and I'm a pastor. Like, that's okay. 
And I said, I'm going to say the name and I'm going to research the name because I don't know enough about that. Why would I just kind of like fudge my way over the name? Let's just mispronounce it and be okay with that. Or let's ask questions about text that we go, I don't really know much about that text. Or if there's something weird, you've heard me say this, and I'm kind of helping Suzanne as she's becoming a preacher and, and gaining that. I said, when you read something and it's weird, don't ignore it. Call it out. Think of yourself looking at that for the very first time. What would happen, and I'm a little bit off my notes, but what would happen if when we read the Bible, we had the permission to stop and go, that's weird. Like, why does that say that? Like, Suzanne was reading something, and she, I forget what it was, but it had something about some kind of dragon or something, and she kind of read through it, and I go, hold up, what did you just read? She's like, that is weird, isn't it? And I said, yeah, and everybody's going, that sounds weird. Well, there must be something going on. That, let's find out what's weird and discover that. So that's kind of what I started asking. I felt permission here at this church to look at weird stuff that doesn't make sense to explore names that I couldn't pronounce. I learned a phrase that I've taught a lot here, and I hope that this, maybe this is the one phrase that we all need to hear. If you're uncomfortable with it, don't understand it, lean into that. Just lean in. Like, what would happen if we just became people who said, I'm uncomfortable with this conversation. Okay, lean into it. You must have something you need to learn there. I'm uncomfortable with this passage of scripture. Okay, lean into it. Don't don't lean away from it. Just lean on in and see what happens. So I started to do this. And we started to do this. Started leaning into difficult texts or passages. And then I had this thought. I said, what if, what if we took all these scriptures that I have been afraid to confront in passages that I've sorted over, what, what, what if, what if these, that, that people say, you know, well, and, and I gotta be, I gotta tell you guys, when I started writing the series, and I, I sent this to some friends, I go, uh, number one, those are way too hard to preach. Those are way too difficult to talk about. Are you sure you really want to talk about those, you know, in church? But, well, why wouldn't we? That just seems kind of weird, right? Well, let's lean on into these. Let, let's see what happens. Let's stop ignoring these passages. Maybe they're controversial. Maybe they're too difficult to explain. Maybe, maybe we don't have all the answers about them, but let's lean into that reality. So I leaned in. And we stopped ignoring these problematic passages, and we decided to address them. We studied them. We wanted to see what we could learn along the way. And here's, here's the surprising thing about this. I kind of thought in this series that we would go one direction with this. And then as we've gone through the series, I felt like we went a totally different way. And every week, and maybe this sounds bizarre, but every week, I was almost surprised where we landed. Where we would land somewhere and go, man, I kind of want to worship now. Like, that had some power to it. There's something behind there. And it was like, I believe this phrase about leaning into stuff, but then we really started to do it. It was like, there's something here. So, the whole time we've been doing this, though, there has been a passage that has been kind of hanging around my head. It's been in the back of my mind the whole time. And a friend of mine was like, hey, you're talking about the Bible. Are you going to preach on this particular passage? And I said, I wasn't planning to. I just didn't, you know, think about it. And the more that I started to do the series, the more I thought, we should talk about that passage. I think there's something there 
that might have something to say to us. Now, I'm just going to read the passage. We're going to get into some details on it. There's a lot, a lot of discussion here. I've had some awesome discussions actually this week about it. And as I started to look at it, I landed in a place that I'm pretty comfortable about where I want to take this text. And I think there's something we can learn from it. But we're going to lean into some tension that comes from it. Now, you, you might, when I read it, you might not go, you might go I don't, what's the tension here? I'm going to help us find it, okay? Maybe right away you'll find it, but I'm going to help us find it a little bit and see, see what happens. So here's the text. This is 2 Timothy 3.16. This is a letter. We're going to talk a little bit more about it, but, but listen to this verse. It says this. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, in training in righteousness. Now, there's a comma there, okay? So there's another verse that we're going to talk about, but let's stop it just here for a second. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. Now, whether you have grown up in church or not, okay, when you use this passage, when we run into a passage like this, there, there's a couple questions we have to ask. These are the, kind of goes to the questions we've been asking about the Bible. So just listen to these words real quick, okay? Number one, all scripture and God breathed. Now, if you look at those words, maybe you can see why I had a little bit of trepidation when I made the subtitle of this series, Why a Book of Confusion, Contradiction, and Violence Matters. Like, that was kind of one of those things where we were trying to come up with it, and we said, okay, so we're going to send this postcard out to people, We're going to call it the Bible because people have sort of all these images that come to mind when they hear the Bible. And then we're just going to create the tension right on the postcard itself. Because this is either going to scare people away right away, and they're not going to be real happy around here anyways. I get that. Or they're going to go, I want to hear what they're talking about with this. Because as we've looked, there are confusing passages. There are contradictory passages. There are violent passages what do you do with those? But then this tension comes when we get to this passage. It goes, well, all Scripture is God-breathed. Well, Ryan, how can you say it's confusing, contradictory, or violent if God breathed it, all of it? There's a little, kind of a little tension that starts to come into that. So I was preparing the sermon, and I found this tension, and I thought, sounds like something worth leaning into. Let's, let's see what we can discover. Now, We automatically know that from what we've learned in this series that there's some questions we should probably ask about this text, okay? And the easiest way to do this, and we should do this with any scripture that we get into, is let's just ask the W's. Who, what, where, when, why? Who, what, where, when, why, right? Who wrote it? Uh, What is it? When did they write it? Where was it written? Why did they write it? And the answer to that last question why is almost impossible if we don't ask who, what, where, when first, right? So let's start there. Let's dig in. Who? What's the who? What's the where? What's the when? So this passage is written by a man named Paul. Paul was a Jewish leader. Uh, He was incredibly educated. He was a Jew. But the Jewish faith was sort of divided into what we might call denominations or um, certain groupings. And, and he was a part of one of those groups. Um, he was part of what was called the Pharisees. And, and the Pharisees, they, they, they knew the Bible incredibly well. They sort of, you know, said, we got this. 
We understand it. We know the text. We memorize things. Uh, He had trained his whole entire life to study the Bible. Now, Paul is one of these guys. the The way that he has studied, when Jesus starts teaching, and Jesus starts walking around with these disciples, and he's telling them about scriptures. This is why the Pharisees start asking questions, because they're looking at Jesus, and they're going, what authority do you have to teach? How educated are you? What education do you have? And then you're going to start teaching people, and you're going to teach these uneducated fishermen about the Bible? I mean, who do you think you are? That's kind of the Pharisees. They, they were just high horse mentality. And, and, and listen, people in, the old, in, in that period... They looked at the Pharisees and they said, I want to be like that. I want to know the Bible like that. I want to understand the Bible how they do. They seem like, you know, they're really, they, they, they understand this. So they looked at Jesus and they're like, what does he know? What do these guys know, right? And, and Paul is one of these guys. He knows the Bible. He understands this thing. Well, he also persecuted Christians. He hated Christians. If we go to the book of Acts, which is another book in the Bible, it's right after the Gospels about Jesus, the stories of Jesus, we find a story of Paul. And, and, and in, in Acts, it tells all these stories about Paul, but there's one in particular, and it has Paul approving of the death of Christians. Says, yeah, he's basically saying, go get him, kill him. But then, not long after that story, we find Paul becoming a Christian himself. His entire life begins turned completely upside down. He moves away from this place where he has all these answers. He had all figured out. His life is completely torn upside down. And he becomes a Christian. He begins to share the message of Jesus with everybody around him. He begins to uh, plant churches and start churches. He begins to help leaders in these churches, to lead other people. He encourages them to start other churches. When you look at Paul, Paul is incredible. His, what he did in the early church set the course of the church forever. It's incredible. So he begins to write these letters. And he writes these letters to all of these churches because he's trying to guide them, trying to push them forward, trying to move them forward. He had all sorts of people, men and women, who were leaders in these churches that that he would go to and he would help them to lead in these churches. One of these individuals was a young man named Timothy. And Paul wrote to him. So Timothy was in a church in a city called Ephesus. And there's a book called Ephesians. It's a letter to that particular church. But Paul also, while he wrote to that church, wrote specifically a couple letters to Timothy, trying to help him to lead the church. And he has something important to tell Timothy, to help guide him along. In the context of one of these letters, this is where this passage comes about the Bible. Because Paul has something very important to tell Timothy about the scriptures within the context of this city of Ephesus in this new faith of Christianity. He has something he wants him to understand. That's the background of what's happening here. Now, we're going to find some ways that this applies to us today, but if we don't ask, why was Paul writing this specifically to Timothy in this place, we're going to miss it. We're going to have a hard time understanding how this applies to us. So I'm going to read this one more time, and then we're going to get into a little bit about why would he say this to Timothy in this city called Ephesus, in this brand new church. 
All Scripture is God-breathed. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So all Scripture, God-breathed. There's like that tension. Well, who are we to question anything in Scripture? Now, typically, if you first just read this without any kind of back knowledge, right? If we just read all Scripture, we would just think of the Bible naturally, right? We would just think the Bible, all Scripture. And that's how a lot of people have taken it. We think of this thick, bound, completed book, right, that everybody has, that everybody can get a hold of, right? We live in America where I can pretty much go to every store and buy a Bible. I go to Walmart and I can buy a Bible if I wanted to buy a Bible. The Bible is just accessible. It's there. We have multiple copies. I have some on a shelf that I haven't even opened for a long time because I prefer a different one. Well, I like this translation more than this translation. I mean, we are, we are incredibly lucky to have the Bible the way that we have it in our world today, a complete bound book. But this is not the Bible that Paul knew, not even close. The scriptures that Paul knew were the ones he grew up in, the ones that we find in the Old Testament, in the first half of the Bible. You could even break it down and say that for Paul as a Pharisee, how he grew up, he probably specifically thought of scripture as those first five books of the Bible. They sort of had a way that they said these were the authoritative, you know, these were the books of our people, and then they had these books, but he had a very specific section, and it was not the leather-bound Bible that you keep on your shelf. Now, some people call these the Hebrew Scriptures, so, but to Paul, they were just the Scriptures. Now, people didn't walk around, and I know you know this, but listen, people didn't walk around with these Scriptures in their pocket. They didn't have many scroll-sized Bibles. They had gigantic scrolls that you had to open. Yeah, they didn't just go, whoop. They had these huge scrolls that they had to put up and hang up. I mean, you have to imagine them, like, picking these things out. Like, almost the ritualism, the beauty of this, like, I think is there, is that they would take these incredible scrolls and move them over and then open them up and read from there. There was something kind of powerful about that. We've sort of lost that. Something changes when you can just take your phone out and read the Bible or have it read to you. It takes away sort of that power of this book. But this is what he understood. Now, in Jerusalem, they would probably have a very large collection. They would have had a large collection of these scrolls. In the synagogues, which were like, you know, small churches within these villages for the Jewish people, they would have a limited number of these scrolls. Some of them would travel from synagogue to synagogue as they experienced worship in each place. So this wasn't just something that was simply accessible. He, he looked at this and he said, look, the, the, these are like, the, these are the big scrolls and collections and it, it just wasn't an accessible thing you just had with you. Now, Paul, so he writes this letter and this is the background he has right about this. Paul writes this to this guy named Timothy. Now, this is where this is important. Timothy was born to a Jewish mother, and to a Greek father. Timothy and his mother become Christians. So they also then have all this background about what it means to follow God, and their reference was their Jewish faith, 
which had this understanding about these specific books and the way you did things. Now, remember, in the early church, there was a huge divide. Well, what does it mean to be a Christian and to have this background as a Jewish person? So can you imagine Timothy, whose mother is Jewish, and he then was Jewish, with a father who was Greek, who didn't have any of this Jewish background. They become Christians, and now they're wrestling with, well, what about my background? What about my Judaism? How does that translate to Jesus, who was Jewish but then was killed? How, it, is this like something new? Is this, do, we, do we go back and read the old stuff? How does all of this connect? And what's interesting about this is this is still sort of a debate that we have today. What do we do with all those old, that old stuff in the Old Testament? Does that stuff apply today? What about this mixing of fabric stuff in the book of Leviticus? Is it okay because I'm absolutely a sinner today because I've mixed my fabrics? Am I supposed to have long hair? Am I supposed to do this? You know, how do you wrestle with this? Now imagine if we're still having conversations like that today, Imagine being in the first century, the very first people right after Jesus, and there's people who are looking at you going, no, you're not doing it right, because you're supposed to follow the law exactly how it's written. That, that is how it is, and Jesus is the completion of that, but, but, it, but it doesn't change you, that you have to continue to do this. Then there were other people on the other side, and you see this conflict in the Bible, they're, it's, they're wrestling with it. Well, what about, but, but no, I don't think we should expect these people who didn't grow up in the Jewish faith to take on this burden of the law. They shouldn't have to do this. Why should they do this, right? Can you imagine having this conversation today? And you think about personality types and how people think about things and how they wrestle with stuff, and somebody goes, but it's in the rules. You know, and then there's that other person who goes, well, I don't think the rules need to apply in this case, man. Let's just have some freedom here, Right? And they have this huge argument in Jerusalem. They gather everybody together, and they're all sitting there, and they're arguing about it. This is in the Bible. I love this. Like, we're supposed to have hard conversations with each other and wrestle with each other and help us figure out this faith thing. And you know what the crazy thing is? At the end of the day, it sure doesn't seem like there's really a clear answer here. Some of them said, no, we're going to go this way with it. No, we're going to go this way with it. And it sort of left some diversity in the early church. Oh, that'd be awesome. There's a lesson there, isn't there? That's kind of cool. There's some diversity about understanding. So they're wrestling with this. Timothy's going, well, what do I do with this? And then he's probably going, so should I only listen to Jesus? Or do I read Jesus through the Old Testament? Or do I read the Old Testament and then kind of think about how that aligns with Jesus? What am I supposed to do with that? And that's what Paul is speaking into here. What do we do? How, how do we help people understand what they're supposed to do with this stuff back here in their modern context today? So this is probably the tension. Well, not even probably. This is the tension. Let me just be a little more clear there. This is the tension that Paul writes to in these letters. To the city of Ephesus, a Greek city, to a leader who is Jewish, who is now following Jesus, trying to understand what do you do with your background? Because look, this is some serious stuff. He's going to now be teaching all of these other people. And this gets real serious when you talk about something like circumcision. Everybody goes, why is the New Testament filled with all of this stuff about circumcision? Why is that here? What, is, what does all of this mean? 
Now, here, here's the thing about this. I know you're kind of like, why are, why are we talking about circumcision? Where are you going with this? For Jews, circumcision, it was a sign of their faith. And some people thought, well, this should be a sign of faith for the uncircumcised believers. And when I say uncircumcised believers, I mean the men who are full adults who are looking and going, you want to cut my what? Following Jesus means you need to snip my huh? This is a huge debate. Thank you. I'm so glad it was. I'm glad they dealt with it because I wouldn't want to have to sit here and argue about it. I mean, can you imagine me the guy that walks in and goes, just so you all know, I have the scissors, I have the knives, we're ready to go. And somebody stands up and goes, wait, whoa, whoa, big fella, slow down. Or can you imagine the other people on the other side when the early church decided, well, you know, we realized the whole circumcision thing wasn't a big deal. And some dude's going, y'all could have figured that out like a year ago. I'm pretty upset now. Can you imagine, right? So this is the tension. This, this is the absolute tension that is going on here. These are the questions people had about their faith. So Paul speaks into this, and he says, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching. I'm going to simplify this. Hey, Paul's saying, don't, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. The, the history, the stories, the parables... The songs, the poems of the Jewish people are worth saving and learning from. He says, look, all that scripture you grew up on, all of that stuff back there, it is worth keeping around. Don't, don't just toss it out. We need the history of these people. We need their stories. We have got to learn from this stuff. It speaks to us today. It is not worth ignoring. We don't just go straight to Jesus because we need to understand where these people came from and where the story goes that leads to Jesus or we can't really understand Jesus. So Paul is trying to correct something. He says, hold on a second. Now, what about the New Testament? So what do we do about this New Testament stuff? What do we do? And here's, here's what I want to say about this. Paul and the other authors of these books, they had no idea they were writing the Bible. Paul, Paul did not know that he was writing the Bible. He was simply writing his experience with God, and he was sharing that with the early church, okay? So when people wrote um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, the Gospels of Jesus, they wrote it to particular people to tell the story of Jesus. We're going to talk in a couple weeks about how Luke was written to this man named Theophilus. It was written to him by Luke to say, I want to tell you a story, because this matters, and I want you to hear this story. Theophilus reads it, he shares it, it goes viral. And that's what all happened with all this stuff. Somebody read the book of Ephesians, and they said, what's in here? Hey, this is really good stuff. You know what, guys, you should read this. And they kind of forwarded on to some other churches and other people. And people began to hear something powerful within the stories that were being written. Then. Now, Paul had no idea. He didn't know that you would have the version Bible on your phone, and his letter would be in that. He'd probably be freaking out a little bit about it. He'd probably be like, hold on, can I, can I edit that a little bit? Because I, I want to make sure you're, I'm clear on some stuff that you're probably going to misunderstand. Right? It's easy to misunderstand. It's an old letter written to a certain group of people that then people said, there's something about this. There's something powerful going on here. 
other people need to hear this. So it becomes what we call Scripture. So this idea of all Scripture, what he meant to a particular group of people, sort of becomes a little bigger. These divine writings, as the Greek says here. Okay, so listen, now this takes us, and this takes us to a really cool place about the Scripture being God-breathed. So there's sort of the idea about all Scripture. Now listen, what does he mean by this thing, all the God-breathed? Now, when Paul wrote the second letter, like I just said, he wrote it in Greek, right? So he's using the Greek language. And in the Greek language, he writes this word, God-breathed. Okay? Now, it is two words. And this is, this is really kind of cool. It's a compound word. The first, and here, I'm going to pop up the Greek here real quick. We don't have to pronounce it. It's not worth pronouncing. But the first one, I'm going to underline it real quick. That's the second one. But the first one's bolded, so we'll figure that out. Okay, so we have theo. Okay, this is where we get the word theology. Okay? Any kind of theo thing we talk about, that's about God. So this is how the Greeks spoke of God or God's theo. Theo. The second one is this word noustos, pneuma. It has all these different words. Spirit, breath. So he takes two words that are Greek words, that are very specific words, and he smashes them together. Now here is where this gets super, super cool, and I can be really nerdy about this. This is the only place that this word is ever found in the Greek language. You will not find this word anywhere else unless people are talking about this passage as they're commentating on it in the Greek language. But Paul did not find this word anywhere else. Isn't that mind-blowing? And isn't that kind of cool to think about? Paul was trying to describe something, and he could not find the word to describe it, so he made up a word. I think that's flipping cool. And I know, and here, and you say, well, we don't really do that. We do it all the time. Here's a word that we do. I have a friend that I like to text. And I was texting Amber the other day. And I text Amber, and then I wait for Amber to text back to me. And I wait. And I wait. <laughs> and I'm going, when is she going to write me back, right? And now, you've done this. Now, I'm, I'm sorry. We'll talk about it later. But the re- and I meant we'll talk about it later because you'll yell at me for making you a, the object lesson here. But we've all done this, right? You've texted somebody, and then you wait. And you wait. And you wait. Do you know what the word for this is? It's this right here. Textpectation. Textpectation. Does anybody ever use this word, textpectation? Yeah. I didn't make it up, but I'm going to pretend I made it up. You all may use this if you want. It's going to end up in the dictionary. You have textpectation. And some people before us did not have textpectation. My dad does not understand the context or concept of expectation. Because I'll say, why didn't you answer my text? Well, I left my phone at home because your mother had her phone. What? That's not how this works. You take your phone with you because I'm texting you. And he's like, well, you could have texted your mother. How do I know that she had? Like, I'm just imagining they sort of think the world, you like take the rotary phone off the wall and you just carry it with you. Like, that's kind of, because they're trying to understand how the modern world works. They don't get expectation. Paul's the same way. He goes, there's not a word that I can even use to begin to describe what I'm trying to help you understand. And he says, so let me just make a compound word up. And it's going to be this word, God breathed. God breathed. He struggled to define a word in such a way he had to make it up. Now, this is where we have to use some reasoning. 
what do we know about Paul? Because here's what I want you to understand. If somebody tells you, I know what that word means, or I know what this text is about clearly, okay, because I want you to hear me. We're going to make some assumptions here, some educated assumptions about this passage. But there is not a definitive, this is what he's talking about here. There is a lot of discussion. There is a lot of debate going on. What is Paul getting at? So we have to kind of go, well, let's ask some good questions. Let's try to understand what's happening here. So we know Paul is Jewish, right? So if something has a Jewish background, where do we typically go when we want to figure something out that's Jewish? Where should we go? Let's go to the beginning. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. This is why oftentimes in sermons say, hey, you know what? If we go back to Genesis, I bet we'll find something that will help us understand this better. Let's go back to the very beginning. Now listen to this. This is Genesis 2. And I think this is a really cool understanding of this. And, and, and I didn't find that. I, I was reading somebody else who found this, and I, I think this is a cool understanding here. Genesis 2. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But the streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Now quickly, I'm just going to get an aside real quick because I think this is a really cool aside. When we read a passage like that, the first thing that we typically do is go, oh, they're trying to describe something about the history of the earth and how the earth was formed and how God created. But you have to read it through people trying to understand who they are in relationship to God. When they're writing the Genesis story, they're saying, How do we understand who we are within our relationship to who God is? The the scriptures, when understood from that perspective, take on so much more power. We understand people are asking questions. Who am I? Who is God? No shrub yet appeared. God hadn't sent rain yet. I can rely on God. God's going to do something here. The streams come up. Then it goes on. Then the Lord God formed a man... From the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Again, stop and ask, what does this say about me? What does this say as us about humanity? What does this say about we as a people? Who is God? Who are we? And let's tell a story and try to understand these questions. Without God, without God's breath, we we have no life. We have no breath. We we have no breath here. He says, pause here for a second. Let's break down what happens here. Listen to this. God forms man. God breathed into man. Man becomes a living being. And what the ancient writers are saying is this. Without God, man is not alive. Man becomes a living being when God breathes life into him. So from the, from, listen to this, from, the, from birth to death, they saw the power of breath. They saw the power of, became this word spirit. They heard an infant for the first time breathe. They saw a loved one sitting and exhaling their final breath. And to them, it became this incredibly spiritual reality that without this breath 
of life, we can't exist. It's really beautiful when you begin to see it and understand it that way. And there's some spiritual power to that, right? Hundreds of years later, the early church would talk about the spirit of God breathing life into their own lives and into the church. The use was different, but the language is almost identical. The Spirit of God breathes life. So Paul, is it possible that Paul takes this spiritual idea that had become central for the church, and he then applies it to Scripture? Listen to it again, 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. People wrestle with their understanding of God and themselves in the context of their time and place, right? They write down their stories, their poems, their songs, their history as a way to share their experience with other people. These stories and poems and songs and history have power as God breathes life into them. As we pick up these stories and see God working through their lives, and then we apply that understanding to our own. And as a result, these words become alive. They're not simply words on a page. They become so much more. These words become sacred, they become holy, and they become divine. Because what happens is they write these stories, God breathes, and you go, there's something here, there's something powerful happening. Now here is where this gets really cool, and this is what I want to close with. This is exactly what we discovered over the course of the series. Think about this. In the first week, we looked at one single word. This first word in the Bible taught us that we have been invited by God into a journey where questions are welcome, interpretation is needed, and that our questions aren't bad for us but instead have the power to mold us and grow us in our faith. That very first sermon that we had. It was, hey, look at this really interesting word in Hebrew that it's really hard to interpret. It has something incredible to teach us. And as we started looking through Scripture, we went, wow, there is something powerful about understanding that reality about that passage. This happened then in the second week. We looked at a passage that felt antithetical to what we know about science It was about the firmament. I talked about the flat earth and this dome over it that they start describing here. We go, this feels really anti-science to me. I don't know. What do we do with this? And at first glance, it felt like we had to make a choice between science and the Bible. Instead, as we began to see what they were trying to help us to understand in the text, we discovered that they were writing about God's protection over their lives. And then we discover this thread that is alive through all of scriptures that takes that idea and it gets even bigger and gets different understandings. But throughout all of scripture that God cares for us, that we can trust in him. Because from the very beginning, humanity found a loving God who's for them and not against them. I think it's just incredible. Who would have known if if we just want to lean away from the tension? It feels anti-science, but listen what the writers are trying to say Allow God to breathe that text and make it alive when you read it and see how it applies in your life right here and right now. The third week then, we found what appeared to be contradictory stories. And here's what it pointed to. The reality that God lets his people tell their own stories. And at first, that's a little jarring. That's kind of scary. But it's an invitation. 
every single one of us is invited to be a storyteller. Your story, my story, their story. It all matters as we share the hope that we found in Jesus. Because your story is unique. Your story is only your story. And that's what the Bible teaches us. That all of these people are telling their stories from their understandings and their way. They all get to be the storytellers. How cool is that? We're all invited to tell our stories. It's amazing. The fourth week, listen to this. We learned from a passage that sounded like it was silencing the role of women in the church. We looked at it more closely. We discovered that is not at all what is happening in that text. As we peel back the layers, we found that the words are actually a challenge that the church is not alive until every single voice in the room is heard, especially those that are marginalized and are on the sidelines. That the church has a responsibility to reach out to the next generation, to those who don't get their voices heard, and say, lift up those voices because their stories matter. The church is incomplete without them. That preaches, that's some stuff right there. Who would have known? Some of us want to go, the Bible tells, you know, Paul's going, women should shut up in church. And we go, get that out of here. And we go, wait a minute, hold on, let's see what's happening there. It has the power to preach to us and say, no, you hold up. It has the power for us to look outside and say, there are people who are discriminated against whose voices need to be heard. And now we have a responsibility from Scripture to go, you're not going to silence them anymore. You're not going to shut them up anymore. Their voices need to be heard because the kingdom of God will not come until their voices are heard. Right? That's awesome. That preaches. That's what Paul's getting at. Okay, last week, we discovered which were the hardest passages for me, that in violent passages of Scripture, there was a conflict between welcoming others who are different than us or celebrating our common humanity and sharing the story of God's justice and mercy and grace with the entire world. This tension between us and them is spilled throughout Scripture. It's almost as if they're battling internally with the idea, do we welcome them or do we push them away? That was powerful. That is alive in our world right now. As people go, keep them away, and everybody says, welcome them home. Well, who are we supposed to be? In the words of Jesus, we went forward. We said there's a tension here. What does this tension tell us? And we found that through Jesus, his life and his death and resurrection gives us a better way to live. That Jesus settles it once and for all. He says, there's these texts of people who are pushing them away. There are others that are welcoming people to the table. And Jesus says, it's that one. Just so you're all clear, it's that one. He says, you will welcome everyone to this table. That is so powerful. Now listen to this passage one more time. And I want to read the end, then we're going to close. All scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, Here's the comma, so that the servant of God, that's you, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, in the original context, it's Timothy, okay? The servant of God is Timothy, but this is going to come alive for us because God is speaking through this to us, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, I'm going to read this very end because I want to be clear on this. The ancient words of the Bible are at times confusing, contradictory, and violent. 
But Paul didn't want to change a thing about them, and neither do I. These books that make up the Bible are filled with stories, poems, songs, and history of imperfect people who are wrestling to understand themselves and understand God. And what I've discovered is that God continues to speak to us through through them in their words in ways that I never could have imagined. But I have to ask the right questions and actually listen. I have spent a long time studying the Bible. But I didn't always love the Bible. And the reason I am so passionate about this right here is because I don't want you to miss that opportunity. I want us to be a church that leans in to hard texts and hard conversations because I believe that God is speaking through these words to us if we would be willing to lean into the tension, have dialogue, try to understand it, and realize that God wants to speak to us today. And you know what? I think God is speaking the loudest in the hardest words. It's easy to go to those passages that everybody knows that are just, you know, everybody knows these words. But man, God speaks the loudest in the ones that they're hardest to wrestle with, right? So let's pray. God, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for the people who wrote down their stories and their history and their poems and the ways that they just tried to express their understanding of their relationship with you. God, we thank you that somewhere within that mixture, God, you, you, you help them wrestle with those things, but you also left their humanity so very much alive in this text. God, I realize it is really hard to wrestle and understand where you're speaking, where they're speaking, what that looks like. But God, help us to be the kind of people that ask those questions, to wrestle with that stuff and have the scriptures speak to us in its totality. And God, help us to be people who seek righteousness. Who as we approach the text, God, as we look for answers, that you would point us to places where we learn and we grow and we discover how to be more like you. Because that is what counts. In your name we pray. Amen.